0: Hey guys, it's really good to be back and welcome again to listening to Ralph Moore as we continue our discussion on our movements and church planting in the West. In this third podcast, uh, we jump into the area of multiplication and keys to the multiplication in a Western sphere. And uh, some key comments here that he makes of our ecclesiology, our understanding of church stops multiplication and being able to recognize and validate small models of church and encourage emerging leaders. And what we have made church out to be turns out to be a blockage as we deal with a post-Christian culture. Interestingly, Ralph really talks about the pre-discipleship process of friend-making. So moving church beyond a a marketing concept to a planting communities concept that begins with friend-making. And finishes the podcast with leadership, what it is to lead, moving people an inch closer to Jesus. Evangelism not being the hit and run deal, but uh, us all being part of God's great saga to share what we know of God with our friends. So enjoy this podcast. I'm sure that you'll be encouraged. You'll be um, enjoying the different uh, language that he uses. And uh, yeah, let's jump into Ralph Moore. I wonder if we could just jump into the area of multiplication, um, uh, Ralph. Um, what do you think are keys for multiplication in, 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 particularly in the Western sphere? As we see in the non Western sphere, you know, the, the housewife who's part of a church, who goes to the next village, shares with a cousin, and before you know it, there's another church birthed there that's very organic and very quick to spread, where we see Thousands of churches being planted quite quickly through spheres of multiplication many generations, what do you think some of our keys of multiplication are in the West, or what stops multiplication in in our in our world uh here in
1: the West? Well, I think what stops multiplication oftentimes is our ecclesiology that what we have made church out to be um you know, I, I was I was just um, producing a podcast. I had recorded it some time ago. It's a man named Ed Kang in Berkeley, California, uh, which, you know, is so far to the left that I'll call it the, the, the town of Berkeley, the People's Republic of Berkeley, California. And he went there as a student. He was son of a Korean immigrant, uh, very poor family. Uh, grew up in Los Angeles, got into crime very early. A postal worker, a guy who worked graveyard shift at the post office, sorting mail, uh, starts meeting with young boys in a park with a guitar, teach them some songs. And uh, this would have been back during the hippie times when, you know, that kind of thing was going on everywhere. And begin to... Uh, you know, share the word with them and and have them reading scripture and talking about scripture. And kind of it was no holds barred. Anybody talk about anything you want, but we talk about the Bible. And um, Ed ends up uh, going to university, first being kind of pressured by his parents to be a doctor or something, and decides to be an attorney. But he goes to work as a campus pastor while he's a student. And he graduates and, and he said that, uh, he felt that the world didn't really need another attorney that had enough. There were other people who could represent and, and he, he saw being attorney as a call, as a calling. So he's not mocking it. He's saying, uh, there's a lot of people that could represent somebody who's in trouble, but there's not enough campus pastors. And so he, he stayed there. And part of their mantra is, you know, you need to really ask God are you called to leave this community where you went to college or are you called to stay here? And they are now, uh, it's a pretty big church. They intentionally will not own property. So the whole idea of a portable church that most people hate, they, they go, why carry the overhead? We can invest the money in mission. And they are, as of last April, when we've recorded, they're in 38 cities, and they're on 70 campuses. And he says that um, it's really easy to do this. He, he goes, you get these 19-year-old kids, first time away from home, you're intimidated of the university, prestigious university, all that. They're a 19-year-old kid who, who, who doesn't have a parent in their life. Uh, they fall prey to all the alcohol and drugs and all the partying that goes on. They're looking for stability. Um, a, a, a grown-up person who befriend them. He goes. The most effective are college seniors. But if you're 45 years old and you want help, we'll help you. You know, come come and you know, take, pick a campus. We'll send some people with you. And it it's so easy. So what I see are our fears. I see our whole idea of what a church has to be are things that stand in our way. I see that that we we put unreal. St- Unrealistic uh, qualifiers on people who will lead a church. Uh, to me, uh, it has more to do with character and, and 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 an ongoing learning of the scripture. Because I, you know, I will work with and have worked with somebody who we led them to the Lord two weeks ago, and now they're discipling their friend. And they're they, they, in terms of knowledge, they're two weeks ahead of their friend, and they'll stay two weeks ahead of their friend. And, and 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 why not work with that? Why say that you have to go through this course or that class or whatever? And I think we put these artificial obstructions in our own way when it comes to multiplication. The other thing that frustrates me constantly is a, a sort of a, I mean, you can wrap it in sacraments if you want, but there's a selfishness uh, of I don't want to. I need people to talk to. Uh, uh, our church needs money. Uh, we can't afford to lose leaders. All, all of these things, where we actually don't believe what the scripture says that if you give, it'll be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Um, l- let's learn to let loose of what God's given us, and and He'll find ways of giving us more of it. So the, the you know, I I would I would like to think that there are societal reasons why the church is growing so well in other countries and not in the West, but the only cultural or societal thing that I can come up with is there's not enough persecution going on here yet. Um, and and until there is uh, where the, it really comes back down to the problem is always us as leaders. And, it, you know, I was taught my first year in the Bible college I attended. I I took a, I don't know, Of course in Christian education. And uh, we were required to memorize a statement whenever the church has failed in history, the failure is due uh, to, to lack of leadership. And um, it, it really comes down to that. If, if, if we lead toward multiplication, we'll get multiplication. If we lead toward disciple making and, and you'll notice, I don't use the word discipleship uh, to me. With discipleship in America has turned into a cup of coffee in the morning with my Bible for 20 minutes. And I think that discipleship has much more to do with presenting my body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so I try to not use the word discipleship because I I think it's wrongly interpreted. I, I always want to talk about making disciples who will follow Christ. Awesome. Yeah,
0: the the dealing with the barriers of what stops multiplication and then um, dealing with the core of what uh, catalyzes multiplication. Let me just ask you for some observations here. Um, in Australia and in Europe in particular, I'm talking about Western Europe and Eastern Europe to some degree, but Western Europe, uh, we live in a post-Christian culture, so it's really different to a non-Christian culture where you have uh, India, Hindus, or um, Buddhist nation, uh, etc. We, li- we live in a culture where people have walked away uh, and are walking away from church. Christianity is part of their history, not the future that they're looking forward to. And so we grapple with um, some different dynamics of post-Christian culture, and planting churches in, in a culture that has already predefined what is church and and uh, largely uh, has rejected that proposition. Um, I think America is a little different. It's a bit further up the slippery slide. It is facing decline and some antagonism, but not to the degree that Australia and Western Europe are. What are your Observations of this word post-Christian culture and post uh, the dynamics of mission in these in these places um, as we start to um, you know really uh, see Christ um, planted in groups amongst um, some very very um, I guess uh, uh, Aussies and Europeans who are who are just um, uh, church is a barrier not a bridge.
1: I think in, in America, uh, one, one of the things, and I would assume that this is true in Europe, is that there there's a perception. I mean, for one thing, we've, we've adopted Darwinism as sort of a, an answer for everything. It, we, we superimpose the template upon just about everything that we do w- without fully even understanding Darwinism. Um, we, we take, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, which was not about relative morality or any such thing. And we take that word and we throw that onto everything. And so I think there's this sense that, um, it, we can easily give lip service to the church by saying it served its purpose, but we've evolved beyond it. Which which makes the church um, very very ineffectual. Uh, we're at a point where, because of where we're going with the gospel, we're not trying to use the word church. You know, I I, I read a a term the other day that's really giving me thought, and, and it was called truth group or trust group, trust group. That, that um, you know that you're sharing your life with somebody, and 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 there's another. Person that you're talking to, that you're talking about this, this the scriptures and whatever that you would be able to invite your friend to a trust group uh, rather than a, a church. Now I'm not sure if I I'm in love with that term. It's just got my attention, mm. but I think that um, I, I, on the inside, I want to convince young emerging leaders: this is a church, and you are the pastor. You know, there may be only 17 people there, but it is a church. You need to treat it like this. Um, because you need to take it seriously on the outside. We probably don't want to even use that term because it's, it's a turn off to people. But I think that, that the lesson for us all, and this comes back to the way I see evangelism is that we got to go under the radar as, as much as if we were in, an, in a Hindu country or in a Muslim country, we would be wise to um, not, not face the culture politically which is what some people are doing and condemning the culture uh, not try to face it with some sort of a marketing uh, approach but that what we would do would be to uh, befriend people and 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 we've got to go to one-on-one if if we try to go beyond one-on-one uh, then we're going to come up against the culture one way or another uh, you you try to do evangelism on a campus and And go and try to register as a Christian group on a, on a church campus. That was easy to do in the 1970s. It's almost impossible now. And once you do, you're, you're, you're already in conflict with these people. And so, uh, I, I just see, you know, I, I built so much of my life off of Acts two. And one of the lessons to me in Acts two was, uh, we, we have to have friendship with the neighbors and we have to find a way into their hearts. I live in a neighborhood. I moved from Hawaii where real estate is very expensive and uh, it's very multi-ethnic, which is very comforting to me. My, I'm in a in a bi-ethnic um, marriage. And uh, when we started dating, we were in Bible college. My wife is half Filipino. Somebody actually tried to say that we shouldn't date because she was half Filipino. They didn't say we shouldn't date because I was a white guy and that would be wrong for our a Filipino person, they said it because it was wrong for a white guy to date, of, you know, somebody. And it's like, you know, this nonsense just never ends. But um having come from Hawaii, where it's wonderfully multi-ethnic and nobody's in the majority, I live in uh, East County of San Diego. And my neighborhood is nicknamed Chaldean Hill because most of my neighbors are Chaldean Catholics from Iraq. Which is kind of interesting, living in a Christian ghetto, and uh, but but among our neighbors, a a fair number of them are African Americans, and my next door neighbor that I'm real close to is Vietnamese, and they're immigrants, and um, so my wife and I are trying to reach out, and we're we're, you know my my next door neighbor is a Catholic uh, who is sincere about it, the neighbor next to him. Is African American and he's a bivocational pastor of a pretty substantial church. He's got a huge job for the United States Navy. He's a, he's a civilian employee. Across the street, there's a, a couple who are uh, they're down the hill and across the street. So they're they're two houses down and then one over across the street. And uh, she's a Caucasian. He's African American. And she and my wife are pretty tight. I can't get him to talk to me. I know his son, he's a professional basketball player in Poland right now. Uh, We talk. I I briefly have spoken with his daughter, but the guy won't. I I, I can't get him to acknowledge me. If, If I say hi and he's walking his dogs, he'll say hi, but that's as far as it's going to go. So we concoct this idea. Because again, we're looking at Acts two. We we want favor with the neighbors, and the the neighbors that we know that we would like to share our our walk with Jesus with are these people. These this one couple, and so um, we 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 grow tomatoes. So I took little bags of tomatoes and went to my Vietnamese neighbor and my African American neighbor, and you know we had a nice little talk and give them the tomatoes. And then my wife goes across the street and she had hurt her knee real badly. So she can't walk down the hill. It's a pretty steep hill. So I actually drive her like, like 200 meters down the road or not even that much, 100 meters down the road. And I park in the driveway and she goes to the door and she, uh, the guy, the man opens the door and she offers him this little bag of tomatoes and He's a little suspicious at first, and and then he kind of warms up to her. My wife's really friendly, and he warms up to her, and she gives him the tomatoes, and then she says, "My my husband would have given you these, but he's too shy to come to the door. And I'm thinking, don't say that. That's humiliating. And then the guy smiled, and he looked at me, and he smiled. And it's like, oh that worked. I'm glad she did that. There's, and I haven't seen him since, but now there's a little better chance that I'm going to greet the guy and, and we're going to end up hanging out and talking. And, you know, I'm, I'm friends with a, a Syrian guy who doesn't like the Iraqis in our neighborhood. He's a racist. Um, I, but I can't get friends with this guy. So I think if we're going to overcome in the midst of a post-Christian culture, we're going to have to figure out how how do we make friends with these people? I think friendship comes before discipleship. Friend making comes before disciple making, and and that's what I've always taught my people. And and I, and we think you know that all this church planting that everybody you know, talks about, Hope Chapel planting churches, really starts with friend making.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, and um, seeing uh, pictures of you and Ruby uh, right back then, when in the seventies, when you were planning, uh, you guys looked just such like a lovely couple. Um, yeah, brilliant. I think um, as we look at the uh, the the culture in Australia and the shift that we've had from uh, a, a few cultures, Aboriginal and white culture, to now many ethne and many people, uh, religions, uh, pluralism abounds and uh, shift into postmodernism. I think our world looks a lot more like the New Testament world where you've had lots of uh, peoples living together, streams of peoples and the idea of um, uh, the church alive and thriving in a pluralistic culture um, is, is kind of really exciting actually and I think that's um, that pushes us back into New Testament models of church and of engagement in ways that we're yet to discover and just starting to imagine and starting to see glimmers of that. Um, Ralph, I've had you online for some time and I really do thank you for your time but as we come toward an end of the podcast we've got leaders and people who are doing what we're talking about, making disciples, planting groups amongst friendship groups and affinity groups and or leading visions in nations and areas of multiplying churches. As we start to look at the idea of leadership from all spectrums, from the, the mum who's reaching her friendship group with other mums to the leader who's um, catalyzing multiple groups, I wonder if you could finish our podcast with a word of encouragement on leadership and what it is to lead in this day and age when we're talking about discipleship and movement.
1: That's a, that's one of those questions that's so simple that it's like you want to say something profound. Um, I think, to, to me, I've always thought we... we 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 misidentify leaders in America, and for an American church, if you took a class and you passed the course, which means you're good at studying and learning or whatever, they call you a leader. Hmm. But you're not a leader unless you have a follower. So conversely, if you have a follower, you are a leader. And so I would always try to pre- impress upon the people that I was working with the church that I pastored that who who are you leading because you're leading someone and it may it may be a mom with a 2-year-old kid she's she's leading that person um but it also may be the mom who goes to the park once a week with the other moms and their 2-year-old kids and if you have influence there, then you are a leader. And are, then the question becomes, am I am I moving them in, in, an inch closer to Jesus? I, I was I was mentored by um, a guy named Robert Shuler, who you know, kind of a lot of people mock him. He, he built the Crystal Cathedral. He was a TV preacher, all that. But when I was a young boy, he took an interest in me. And I remember Shuler used to always say, inch by inch, anything's a cinch. And that's a little corny, but I, I always ask people, are, are, are you moving anybody an inch closer to Jesus this week? Because if, if, if you have influence in your life, their life, you are a leader, a God appointed leader in that person's life. And w- what are you doing that is inching that person closer to Christ? And when you look at it this way, everything slows down. The, the, the evangelism takes longer than you know the hit and run deal uh, or the, you know, I saw that there's a church down the street from where I live. It's a big church, about 2,500 people. And, uh, they, the church is right at the end of a freeway. So you come off the freeway, you're on a highway. A big sign out there. An invitation can change somebody's life. And I'm thinking of all of the thousands and thousands of people who go by there every day, maybe a quarter of a million people drive past that What in the world does that mean to them? Uh, An an invitation can change someone's life. But among the people who it does have meaning for are the people in that church, and they're being told something wrong. They're, They're being told that your part in God's great saga is to invite somebody to come hear us preach. When really your part in God's great saga is to intervene in the life of somebody that you know and share what you know of Christ with them. And so it does take more time than, you know, a marketing program and a concert and somebody prays the prayer. But then again, a lot of those people don't come back to anything. Um, our our approach toward uh, developing pastors to multiply churches takes far longer than going to seminary for three years. Uh, it's a five to seven year process for most people because They've just come through this disciple-making continuum. But what we're putting out the door, uh, it it tends to not fail. And so I I think that as we're talking about leadership, it really comes down to first admitting that you are someone's leader. And then secondly, asking yourself, what am I doing? It's missional in terms of the great commission in the life of that individual, um, which doesn't end with them coming to Christ. It, it, it starts before they come to Christ, and it ends long after they've come to Christ. But what, what am I doing? Am I, am I seeing my, my role as a leader? And then what am I doing with that role as a leader? If I can get people asking those questions, we can get a lot done.